Hi, Jacqueline. Hi, Taylor. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? Good. Welcome, everyone, to episode 17 of the Honey and Heart podcast. If you're new here, we talk about womanhood, leadership, and everything in between. We release new episodes every other Wednesday, and you can find us on Instagram at Honey and Heart Pod or on our website, honeyandheartpod.com, where you can sign up for our email list and never have to remember which Wednesday. If you're already a part of the Honey and Heart community, thank you so much for being here. We're very happy to have you. And please feel free to join the conversation at any time. We'd love your feedback, whether on Instagram, or sending us a DM, email, whatevs. Shout out to Bo McDowell for adding to the soundtrack that is Honey and Heart with our lovely intro music. And with that, let's get into it. So today we wanted to talk about what are women's issues, what are those considered, and how that plays into society (laughs) on a larger scale beyond just women. So what are considered women's issues? I think when we hear that, we think of things like equal pay, reproductive rights, paid family leave. So a lot of things centered around children as well and ending abuse and assault, which are all very important topics to talk about. But women's issues are also things like gun rights and immigration and relate to things like the economy. Yes. And so this is something I think I first kind of heard this idea of what women's issues are. I think Kamala Harris really talked about this in her I don't know if it was in her presidential run or in her VP run, but when she was being interviewed often, people would ask like what she thought about women's issues. And her pushback was that there are a lot of issues that women care about and a lot of them are not tied at all to, you know, just the woman's experience or just based around family or kids. And that a lot of women really give a shit about the economy. And I think I don't know if it's getting older or if it's, you know, a global pandemic or a combination of things, but the economy and kind of where we're at on a global scale and also how we navigate the econ- like our own personal economies in the states, in the US, in our state, in our cities, it's something that's been top of mind for me a lot lately. And it's also something I'm seeing a lot of on social media, in different podcasts, different YouTube videos. So I kind of wanted to bring them, bring this idea to everyone so that we can have a a more open conversation about it and hopefully understand that all of these things are intertwined and that we want to be having like a full, well-rounded conversation because I do think that there are things There's a lot of movement happening in the U.S. and in our economy right now, and I think that there's a potential for things to be changing and morphing a lot. So I'm hoping to continue to the conversation so I can have a better understanding of it too. And so one of the things that's really been coming up a lot that I thought we could kind of get started with is the labor shortage. Dun, dun, dun. I work in construction and a lot of times what is happening in the general economy is really closely tied to what is happening in the construction industry. Um, When the economy is good, people are building, there's lots of labor available, lots of resources, yada, yada. When things start to go south, the construction industry really gets hit. There's lots of layoffs that happen in the construction industry. When the economy's bad, people stop building when they don't have money (laughs) and the economy's bad. Um, So one thing that we've been experiencing in the industry for a while now is a labor shortage, specifically with like skilled labor shortage. So I'm interested. (laughs) Yeah, it's. And for me, too, I don't know if I'm seeing it as much like in my field, 
But even just driving around town, the number of now hiring signs that I'm seeing and the number of now hiring signs that say how much their hourly is and knowing that it's a little bit more. There's like a school district hub right up the street for me. I'm really close to like a big dining area and the number of signs that are like now hiring $18 an hour, which now hiring at $18 an hour, which is a decent amount more than a minimum wage and it really is something that even I notice I'm like oh wow $18 an hour $19 an hour not too shabby but it really is a reflection of where a lot of people are feeling right now I feel with COVID this has really kind of been a divider between the life I used to have in the restaurant industry and the life I have now in corporate America I don't feel like me and a server today could really relate and resonate on the same level because what they've gone through for the last year is something I have not had to experience. I haven't had to be in a like public facing, like when you work in a restaurant, any person who wants to could walk in off the street and you know, you've got to turn on your customer service uh, voice and, and be ready for that. And so that's not something I've had to experience so I really do feel like I'm seeing this from a from a different angle, but it's just very interesting that although I can't quite relate to what's happening in a lot of these industries, that it's affecting so many people. And even like I mentioned, it's the school district by my house. It's the QT by my house. It's every restaurant by my house. This labor shortage is really um, affecting a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Even um, some restaurants that I go to that are still using like the QR menus, I'll like, you go to pull up the menu and the first thing that pops up on their website is that they're hiring. Yeah, they are definitely in serious need. And I can't remember um, off the top of my mind what episode we talked about this in, but literally Kamala Harris declared it like a national emergency with how many women were leaving the workforce like throughout the pandemic, like I think we lost like 4 million women out of the workforce during the pandemic, which is huge. And I think a lot of those women left because they're seeing that it wasn't the strain sometimes families face if they have kids to have like two incomes. I don't, I don't know if that's it. I don't want to speak. I'm not a mom, right? But it just, you know, it just seems like what women are put through at work sometimes isn't worth it for the extra added income for their family. And so a lot of them left and are staying at home. And it seems like people too now are continuing to leave their jobs. It was unfortunate at the beginning of the pandemic, we were seeing a lot of people who were kind of this decision was made for them. Either they were laid off, their kids were taken out of school and it was like, well, what are our options? And so it meant somebody stepping down. A lot of industries like laid people off, sold off their fleets. And now, although those industries are rebounding a bit, their workers don't really feel supported by their company. And so now that, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen with the with COVID, I don't know where we're going to be in six months to a year from now, but this is felt a little bit more, it feels like we're finding a new norm and this feels like the closest thing to like a new norm, some stability a lot of people have felt. This is more stability than a lot of people have felt within the last like year and a half. And I think with that, people are choosing to leave situations where they were mistreated at work, whether by a toxic work environment or by their customer base. Also, no longer staying for low wages. I wish I had a stat on this and maybe I'll come up with something by the end of the episode, but whether wherever you stand on inflation, I don't know enough to speak to that, but I do know that our hourly wages and our minimum wage is not enough money for where we're at with inflation. And it is pretty crazy that you could work a full-time job in the United States, a job that's deemed essential, a job that for the last year when we saw someone not in that role, we all were affected by it. And it's crazy that you would be an essential worker working full-time and still be below the poverty line. And 
I think that that's something I always kind of knew, but when it's really broken down like that, that somebody is, you know, doing what they can, they get up every morning and they get themselves to work and they do a job that our society has deemed essential and they're still unable to pay for things. And I think in some ways you might say like, oh, well, when, why would people quit their jobs if, you know, they're already in under the poverty line if they're already experiencing instability and um, financial uncertainty and I think where it comes from is wanting to break free of this cycle I think a lot of people who are in a situation like this it's not something you can just put in an application, get a new job, and all of a sudden you have like generational wealth in your family is like financially well off. It's people are feeling really, really burnt out and are done feeling underappreciated and are done being underpaid. And they no longer want to continue working in for an organization that doesn't invest or care about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're working for a company that doesn't support you as an individual it is very demeaning especially if you're then not getting paid enough to even live and survive in this country that's just crazy like the whole point of minimum wage is to provide a decent living wage where someone can survive and support themselves and there are millions and millions of people in this country where that is not possible. And it's crazy too, just you saying that, it's like, if you can't live on it, like we decide what the minimum wage is. Like our country can change minimum wage at any time. Our state can change minimum wage at any time. So why do we have a minimum wage if that money is not enough for somebody to live on? It's not, then it's not the minimum wage. It's, it's below the minimum. But our burgers from McDonald's are going to get more expensive, Jacqueline. Oh my gosh, then we'll we'll pay it because we'll have more money. And that's something too. My TikTok page is like full of these like cyclical conversations and how they can come right back around. And if you pay people more and they can support themselves more and maybe even save, then eventually they'll have the money to pay for the products that are more expensive too. Maybe we should have an economist on the show. I'll start doing some research. <laughs> I know. Right? Well, I think we talked about it a couple episodes ago, too, that CEOs today make 350 times more than their, like, lowest paid employee. And, like, back in the day, that number used to only be 50 times more. Yeah. So how about the money in their pockets? Um, how about we keep the burgers cheap and just, you know, drive that 350 down a little bit so people can live and eat and have a place to sleep and shower? <laughs> and it's interesting, too, you know, especially when there is such a contrast with so many companies across, probably across the world, with how much C-suite people are making as opposed to their um, you know, lowest seniority, lowest ranking employee. But one of the things that I think the U.S. unfortunately really stands out in is organizations not being invested in their employees. Like these employees who are leaving companies, especially, you know, low wage jobs, they aren't offered any health insurance. They have minimal to no paid time off. 401ks, who are they? Pensions. The last person I know who has a pension was my grandfather. My mom, I think, had a partial pension um, for a job she worked in her 30s. She wound up le le uh, leaving that company and changing career fields altogether. But my grandfather was able to live off a pension, and he had a, a good pension from the state of New York. But I don't know a single person under the age of 70 who has a pension. And so I don't, I mean, I ask myself these same questions, but I don't blame the people who are saying, like, why would I continue to invest in my company, in my job, when literally there's no protection, there's no help, there's no investment in the employee. Right. And let's explain a pension real quick for a minute, oh. because... 
It's kind of wild. A pension, literally, if you, back in the day, put in enough tenure at a company, after a certain number of years, they are then responsible to pay you a certain amount of money for the rest of your life. And sometimes, even if you died, your pension would go to your spouse for the rest of their life, which... It's crazy to think that that's something that we used to have and now we no longer have. And like, that's huge. That to me, it's, that's the difference of me knowing that when I retire, I'll be taken care of or never being able to retire. Right. And like our 401ks, 401ks were never invented to be a replacement for pension plans. But companies jumped on board because it was way cheaper for them to do a 401k match or contribution than it is to pay someone a certain dollar amount for their whole life or their whole, you know, their spouse's whole life. And so they were never intended to be a replacement for that. And, you know, a 401k, it's just, it's very limited amount of money that even if you have a matching program, it's just not a great setup for retirement. It's not what it was made to do. So pension plans are crazy. And to like, people can say like, well, it's so funny how some people say like companies shouldn't be responsible for something like that. But you also have to understand, like, I think about it often. If a company's paying me a certain amount, they're making X times that amount off of my labor and my work that I'm putting in. And so I should be able to reap the benefits of that success as well and just be supportive. Like, I really think, you know, so it can be very stressful to run and operate a company and it could be very stressful to hire employees. And I feel like you are taking on a portion of liability for their well-being and doing so. And if you don't want that responsibility, then don't hire employees. And that's just how it has to be. Like, we're humans and need to be treated with dignity that humans deserve. And um, it's way easier, too, for companies on a larger scale to, like, dilute that feeling because the top is way further away from the bottom. And so there's zero investment. They don't care about the bottom at that point. You are... um, Literally just a commodity for the company. And it's sad. (laughs) It's sad to think about. We're not commodities. We're actually living, breathing, sentient beings that have wants and needs. And, you know, people are seeing it's not fucking worth it anymore. They're not supported. So why is it worth it? (laughs) And, too, a lot of it is – I do really want to make sure I'm, like, basing – my criticism on the like structure itself which has like allowed this to happen but on the flip side we not the corporations not the companies but we just the American population have not been treating these people well either you know there was a period of time like right when the pandemic happened where I was seeing constantly videos of people screaming at fast food workers, of people upset that things are taking too long. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen videos of people melting down in a grocery store over wearing a mask when truly it, it's it's a respect thing. And it's unfortunate that for some people, they don't have that same respect. And I do think there comes a point where you know, you don't know how much you have and you may not have much, but at least you have like your own autonomy and respect for yourself enough to know that you're not in a situation that suits you and there's no path to betterment. I think, you know, uh, there's this idea that like you start flipping burgers and within five years you like own your own franchise of whatever, you know, institution, fast food chain it is, but that's really not the case, unfortunately. And there are so many things that in leveling up, in growing in your career require like time, money, and energy. And at this end of the day, like all of those things are money. Like your time is worth money. Your energy is worth money. 
Mm-hmm. And so many people are at like such a disadvantage or in such a place of overworked that they don't have that time. They don't have the money to invest in themselves. They don't have the time to invest in themselves in their current position. And so where they're at right now is, you know, let's start over. <laughs> let's m- move on. Right. And, you know, cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to open up a franchise. And I I always just hate that no matter how much people say that they don't place value on individuals based off their job, it's a lie. It is. It is such a lie. You totally do because you would be, you know, people out there would be the first to say, well, I don't want my kids flipping burgers for their whole life. Or, oh, that career is fine, but not for my child. Or people just look down on certain careers and it's messed up because literally we found out last year, these are essential careers in our economy and in our daily lives. And to not treat those people with respect or to think lesser of them because they're in those roles is, it's just so entitled and pretentious. (laughs) It's, it's interesting. The one question I would get asked when I was in the service industry all the time was, so are you finishing up college? And for a while I was. And so it was like, yeah, I am. And then it was like, oh, are you just doing this while you're in college? And I graduated and I still served for a year and a half after graduating. And I was like, no, this is my job. I serve full time. This is my job. And there would often be comments of, you know, what are you looking to do next? Or, oh, is this like a in, in the meantime kind of situation? And I think for me, I was, you know, actively looking for jobs, but there is this like stigma. There is the stereotype that you're in something, this is a temporary job. You shouldn't have this as an adult person. And unfortunately, I think that's true for a lot of, you know, lower, considered to be lower skilled jobs. Now, mm-hmm. The people at the drive-thru at McDonald's, they that's a skill set I don't have. Truly, to be able to, like, run all of that, to minimize, like, the actual, like, work and training that goes into it, I think is, like, pretty shitty. Also, there are people who are career servers. I always just want to throw that out there. And they're able to take care of themselves and their families. So that's that. <laughs> yeah. And plus, who doesn't love going out to eat at restaurants? Yeah. Um, I've missed it. And if... Right. And if you're going to be rude to servers, stay the fuck home. (laughs) But like our labor shortage, you know, it's probably not going to get any better over the next few years. Um, Not only because of this, but our country's population is slowly not increasing. (laughs) Yes. The U.S. population is growing at its slowest rate in over a century. So really what that means is we're losing more U.S. citizens than we are gaining them. And that happens in a couple different ways. But this, too, is a women's issue that ties so directly to the economy. The reason we are not growing in population is for really two reasons. So one, it's immigration. If we don't allow immigrants into our country, our population is likely to consider declining, especially when you consider immigrants from other countries are maybe more likely to have more children. In the U.S., the average is like two, it's like 2.2 kids, but in many Latin American countries where for a large period of time we were getting the majority of our immigrants, they do have more children per family metric statistic, however you can say that better. So there's that from an immigration standpoint, but also there's our birth rate. So people aren't having children, and by people, Mm -hmm. I mean women. This is something that... Taylor and I have talked about just kind of like personally, um, I think a lot of women have the conversation of, oh, when my parents were my age, they already had kids, a Mm -hmm. kid or multiple kids. And that's not something that's on the horizon for me for a while. It is common that in times of economic hardship, there are birth rates are slower. There are less people having babies. This was true in the 2008 housing crisis, Um, but it's also really true now. And I think 2008 to 2020, that's 12 years. That's actually a pretty short amount of time to have 
two big economic impacts and it's really affecting the way that young people and young women are handling the motherhood and parent conversation and we're just not having kids yeah totally i think that that two two kids per family number is actually down we're down to under two kids per family in the u.s now um and that's been on a decline since for a while i do think there's many reasons about this i don't I think the financial instability and insecurity there is definitely one. I mean, we've talked about it before that millennials, we just have a pretty bad deck of cards dealt to us as far as the cost of education, housing, food, and wages not increasing. And, you know, as much as people will tell you kids are not expensive, they cost money. Even giving birth to a kid costs money. I was actually talking about this um, with some friends last night. A hospital will charge a mother if once the baby's born, if they want skin-to-skin contact immediately, you are charged $80 or whatever for that Um, So because the nurse has to stay there and monitor. And that's just wild. Like, that's a natural thing to happen after having a baby that you want to hold the fucking baby that just came out of your vagina. Like, come on. <laughs> Sorry to be crass, but, like, that's just insane. And I think that also the environment is a factor that people consider with having kids. And just is the planet going to be a safe and stable place for human beings in 80 years? I don't know. <laughs> and... I think that's really interesting. Taylor and I both listened to a New York Times podcast that was talking about the decrease in the U.S. population and really, or excuse me, the decrease in growth of the U.S. population. It's not that we're like technically decreasing in population. It's just that our growth is not growing at the rate it should. But truly the only positive of it is the environmental impact. Less people means less negative impact on the environment. And I think that that's something we really need to step up about. I do think that that was a big conversation with our new administration um, to take climate change more seriously. But if having a growing healthy population is important, even down to like if our government cares, which feels like a little weird that the government would even care about how much people are having children. But the truth is there are a lot of things involved. And in order for the government to continue, there need to be people here and there need to be people working in the environmental impact that we need to really step up to the conversation and do more because this is something that's on the minds of a lot of young people and a lot of millennials is where are we going to be socially um, with like social issues, but also what's the health of the planet gonna be? More and more people are being born with, you know, asthma, just different based on different um, diagnoses and different health hardships dependent on where they are because of what we're doing to our environment at this point. And it is crazy that they're all interconnected, but they are. Yeah. Even more and more women are struggling with infertility uh, or just couples in general, people in general are struggling more and more with infertility. You know, there's no concrete evidence on what that stems from. But I would also say that that's something you also have to look at or that you have to look at from a holistic standpoint of what's going on in our environment and all our environmental factors from what we eat to the air we breathe and how that affects that. So there's that aspect of it as well. I think, you know, just health concerns in general, even though we've come so far with modern medicine, more and more women now have autoimmune diseases that's really increased over the years and what you know, who knows where that comes from. You got to think too, our diets are honestly really experimental. So anything that we're eating or, you know, with the invention of more processed food and TV dinners, um, that's pretty recent that we're going to feel effects from that. So who, who knows? Obviously, I'm making assumptions about things or, you know, just theories. And 
you know, really it's all, you have to look at it from a holistic level because you can't isolate. How are we going to isolate one of those things to study? We really can't like, that's a study that would have to be done over lifetimes and people are not going to, you know, you're not going to be able to control people in such of like a purified study to extract the proper data to determine that. So you just have to look at everything that could be potentially in effect affecting it. And then also one thing that we've talked about is just like growing up. I think your mom worked most of the time growing up and my mom was mostly a stay at home mom. When she did get a job, it was out of school. So we had the same hours off and on. And I don't know. I, it's so hard to find a way, at least for me, like it seems back then. I I don't know. I'm, it's so hard for me to like find a way to balance certain things. And I think we as millennials, because of what we grew up with, want to do things differently a lot of times than our parents did. I think that's just natural human evolution that our, you know, our children are going to want to do things different than we did. And um, it's because we want to like be better and improve and evolve. And it's hard to find a way to do that with how expensive certain things are or how, you know, we don't have maternity leave in the United States. It's like there's state programs or companies can have individual programs, but there are no mandates as to what parental leave could be where there's other countries out there in the world that have a minimum a year of maternity leave that they want you to take when you go have a child. And to me, that makes sense. Like that first year that your child's born, it's like, for me, if I want to have kids, I want to be able to savor every moment of that first year. And I do understand that some women do want to go back to work after having children. And that's totally fine. And that's their decision. But like, you know, I'm going to be getting married next year. I think about having kids. I will be 28 this year. It's time to start thinking about it. uh, Right. And so, you know, I'm starting to read things and study things about having children, especially in psychology and like, what's the best, you know, do you let a baby cry it out or do you pick them up? Like, those are things I think about and that we don't learn. Like, you know, I definitely, once I'm getting closer to being ready, I'm going to go take some parenting classes and whatnot. I'm going to take birthing classes and all that, but we don't have any general like knowledge about those things. Um, and you don't learn it until you do it, which is like, you know, that's not very prepared (laughs) or right mindset, but so yeah, just learning those things. There's more and more things that I'd want to do for my kids that I don't know how that would be possible um, in my current situation. Agreed. And I think too, you know, if the idea of our of our population growth decreasing is something that, you know, researchers are aware of, it's something that like needs to be addressed, our government wants to be, wants to address, then I think that there are some really apparent things that need to change. Like it is crazy to know that you would carry a baby for nine months, then you'll probably go into debt over the labor and delivery. It'll be around, Google's average is around $10,000 for childbirth. And then to know that there is no um, help transitioning like back to work, your time off is very limited. You know, I think I've even seen online like the joke about I mean, it's not really a joke, but it's kind of like, you know, um, someone's like C-section, someone just got their C-section stitches removed. And so like HR is on the phone, like, hey, excited to have you back in the office. And it really kind of makes you question, it makes me question, how can I even, you know, make this next step? But also like, what's the benefit if it means, you know, more strapped for cash, if it means more stress, if it means... Um, you know, more meetings with your boss about not meeting whatever quota you need to. And it's like, oh, well, now, you know, I work at home with a newborn baby and I'm trying my best to navigate it all. There really just like aren't any like protections or resources. And there very easily could be not to tie it back to 
socialized medicine, but I do think it has a lot of huge positives. And even tying into, I think you mentioned something earlier, but, um, oh, you said the a study of that would have to be over lifetimes and that we could just never get people to agree. But in other countries where they're more open to these things and there are more government plans and protections, they are able to take the medical information. And now this is like a little bit, I'm pretty sure it was Norway that I heard about doing this, but since they have socialized medicine and since it is so open, they're able to take the medical information anonymous. So it doesn't have folks' names, but it's their medical details. And they're able to run it and use all of that for research. So they've been able to get better treatment plans and better screenings and preventative measures for things like breast cancer, for example, which it just feels like we're lagging a bit and I know that this isn't like a new idea but it just seems like there's more and more examples coming up of the ways in which we are lagging and maybe it's the society right now maybe it's being 27 but it feels like these really do directly tie to my life like me as a 27 year old in the workforce starting to figure out like where my life's going to be starting to figure out settling down kids you know i think you're a couple steps ahead of me but we're definitely in the same like category of life and it's just like i would be so much more open to these things if there was a little bit more information protection resources help um and unfortunately i just don't see it right I mean, not only is our society a patriarchy, but so is the workplace because for so long women were kept out of the workplace. So it's 100% not designed to be supportive of that and our needs. And, you know, becoming a mother is such a huge transition period for a woman that we as a society offer no support for. Obviously, there's support out there, and it you are privileged enough to be able to afford it. That is awesome. But women out there, you know, a doula is expensive, a midwife's expensive, parenting classes are expensive, um, birthing classes are expensive, lactation, lactation consultants are expensive, PT, uh, postpartum help treatment medication is expensive, like. Yeah, no wonder postpartum depression is a thing when we're forcing women to go back to the same life they lived um, pre-baby while also trying to keep a newborn alive, another human alive, and learn how to be a mother. Like, I I think we've talked about it before how, like, men, I think, so often think that, and to an extent, it's true that women are just going to know what to do with a baby and it's true to an extent right like our bodies do have wisdom um because we've been doing it for centuries but also we don't know all the tips and tricks i don't know how to call like wrap a baby up in a blanket swaddle or yeah i don't know how to do those things i don't know what should be in the crib what should be out is co-sleeping okay i don't know the right way to burp like i don't know (laughs) No, and of course you learn those things in doing it, but if you have no support like before and after that whole process, it's going to lead you to feel like you're not only a terrible person, but a terrible mom and a total failure at both work and at home. And that sounds terrible. <laughs> uh, have you watched Working Moms on Netflix? No. I just started watching it and I do really like it, which I was surprised by. It's like uh, it's based in Canada, but it's like all of these, it's four, I think it's four women and they all, you meet them as they're ending maternity leave. Mm. So they're like all just had babies and they're going like back into the workforce. And it's like a pretty raunchy comedy. I think it's pretty funny, but there's a part where this woman, um, she gets promotion and she's really excited because with the promotion, she's going to go work with a, another woman. She's going to go work out of an office run by a woman And this woman is kind of her, like, career goals. Like, she has it all. She has three kids. She does her great job. You know, like, she's just looked up to her with this company the whole time. And so 
right before she goes to leave for the office, she's asking her current boss, she's like, you know, what can you tell me about this, this new boss? Um, she has three kids. Do you know their names? And her boss is a man. And he goes, ah, oh, no, actually I don't. She goes, ah, love it. Women in the workplace 101. Don't talk about your kids. And she says it in the show, like very straightforward. But it like comes across as so overly sarcastic, so satirical, because that really is the expectation. Like you come to work. Yeah, you have kids. That's great. But you don't talk about them here. They don't affect what's happening here. But it just feels like such a weird place for women to be that you're supposed to be the most like attentive, loving, aware, all-encompassing mom. But once you step into your job, you're just like everybody else. You're just... You're 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 a dad in this space. We're all dads yeah. who work here. You can go be a mom at home, kind of thing. It was just really interesting, right. but I do yeah. recommend the show. I thought it was pretty funny. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, and then on t- the next thing would be it's like, do you have a stable place to live that you'd want to raise a child in, mm-hmm. like? You know, living in a one-bedroom or two-bedroom apartment might be, or one-bedroom might be okay for you and your partner to be living in, Um, but bringing a baby into that and not knowing if you in the future are going to be able to find something better or bigger or safer or insert adjective here of whatever you're looking for that would make you feel comfortable enough to raise a child in, then it's like... I don't know why bring a child into this when I don't know if I'm going to be able to support them. Mm -hmm. And it's really tying in with where we're at in the housing market. I don't know if other people are hearing quote unquote real estate boom or this housing bubble that we're in, but over the last few years, it's been a lot harder for millennials, 20 somethings, 30 somethings to be able to save for a house and now even those people who maybe were in a position to who are about that age where buying a house would enter a conversation are unable to because of where the housing market is currently at houses are being sold tens of thousands of dollars above asking folks are having even if they did have money saved up i was just watching a TikTok the other day it was a lady and her husband they'd saved up tens of thousands of dollars for a down payment but after looking for a house for six months were unable to buy anything now they flipped it and did something really cute they paid off all of their debt so they did a little series of being able to pay off all of their debt but that's another thing is folks our age now have medical debt from having kids maybe or you know an accident being uncovered or being underinsured is huge in the u.s so that's debt they have school debt student loans that can be very predatory and some and some folks are hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt and now they're in a position that even if they were even if we were people our age like I mean I'm speaking I was just able to buy a house thankfully but truly it felt like the grace of God I don't quite know how it happened in my situation but even if you are in a position where you're ready to make that step and buy a house it's it's predatory too and it's not set up for the average young couple average young person to be able to buy it really is It's who can pay the most, and that's not going to be somebody who's 30 in student loan debt. It's going to be a corporation, um, and they'll gladly buy up all the houses. Right. And before you say, oh, well, you shouldn't have gotten into that much debt, um, you told us to, and that it was a great idea to sign up for that at 18 Mm -hmm. years old and go to school and spend all that money, so... And I bought a house three years ago, and even now today, you need way more cash in the market than you did three years ago to buy a house. You know, houses back then were maybe getting one, two, three offers. Um, Houses now, there was one in my area that had over 100 offers on one house. Well, we've been seeing, too, it was a pretty big thing when we bought back in March, but now we're seeing them in our neighborhood, too. Houses will go up on a Friday, and they'll close on Monday. 
They'll go up on Friday. Yeah. They'll show all day Saturday, all day Sunday. They'll collect the top offers. And for the most part, the seller is going to take the top offer. And in a way, I don't blame them. Cash is king. You want to take your money and go. I hear you. But it winds up then that the normal person isn't going to have the highest dollar amount. So they're not getting houses. No. And that only contributes to the rise in the increase of rent even more because of those people buying those houses, especially if they don't plan to live in them then they have a higher mortgage now than that house had but with the previous seller and it's going to rent out at a higher price to cover that mortgage. Yeah, what's going on right now? We're in the process of looking for a house, buying a house. We're in escrow right now. Um, haven't done all the inspections and stuff. So I have been in a situation before where I've gotten further than this and the deal fell through. So it's still not a done deal. Um, but our realtor was telling us about how one couple who's showing houses to, they had a lot more cash than us. They put an offer in on a house going in $60,000 over the listing price. And then what's happening too? these houses are not appraising for as much as they're selling for, which means you're going to only get approved on a loan if the lender's appraiser decides that the house is worth that much because then they need to back up that loan with something, right? So if you're if the house you're trying to buy doesn't appraise at what you want to buy it at, then you're on the hook to either the deal's done or canceled or you have to come up with the cash to make up for that. So these houses are not worth 50, 60 over what they're listed for. So one couple said, well, we'll pay $18,000 cash if the house comes under um, for the appraisal. and Which means that they're paying the down payment that they already agreed to. And then if the house under appraises, they'll still pay everything that they said they were going to. They'll just do an additional 18000 on top. Yep. So they probably had 30000 So now they're paying 48000 in cash. Mm-hmm. And probably even more than that. I mean, they they were looking at houses that were half a million dollars. Add sixty k to that, and five percent of that uh, for minimum for your down payment. So that's a lot of freaking cash. And I don't know about you, but I just don't have eighteen grand sitting in the bank ready to do whatever the hell I want with it. <laughs> well, that happened for for me with my house. So. I came in above asking with an offer I thought was really strong. Y'all, I did so much for these. I sent one-minute videos to every house we put in an offer on introducing myself Aww. so that they would, like, better get to know me. I mean, it worked out in the end, so I'd say it's a good tip. But um, the house, we were like, there's no way it's going to underappraise. Every house in this neighborhood has appraised at value, which in a way, you don't want it to – you want it to appraise because that's how you can get your loan. But you don't want it to appraise for crazy high because then that means a higher mortgage rate. So you're really hoping for a good in the middle. We, we knew it was going to appraise. Um, jokes on us, it didn't appraise. And the seller for my house actually had written into the contract that if the house under appraised, she had a second person in the contract. If the house underappraised, it was no longer Jacqueline's, it went to an investment company. An investment company that said that they would pay 35,000 cash over what I was already giving. Somehow, she decided that it was like too much. She didn't wanna to have to rewrite all the contracts. She didn't wanna start from scratch. She was moving out of the area and decided, you know what? I'd like Jacqueline to have the house. And it truly was almost her picking me, which is why I say it was like, by the grace of God, I have no idea how that happened. My mom told me, she was like, this lady does not know who you are. You are not worth tens of thousands of dollars to her. And I mean, I'm not, but somehow I was. But it can really put you in this like volatile situation where, I mean, I had to even take a few step back sometimes of, you know, one, I don't have the money to be like going in on all these houses. And two, is this the house I even want? Yeah. Is this even, is this even something that I want? It's so easy to get wrapped up. Or am I now just trying to go for whatever I can get? And, and it's understandable. Like 
for me, I was in a position where I, I was really ready for a home. I was living with my parents. I'm, you know, I was 26 years old. I was in a position to be able to move out, thankfully. But there are people who are in much more stressful situations than I am. People who really do need stable housing for their children or a family member or, you know, God forbid, some like tumultuous situation. And it's so easy to get in over your head. And the systems aren't set up to protect the everyday buyer. And that's really where it gets scary. And that's kind of why this is a part of a whole economy chat is all of these things are interconnected and we need to be discussing them and addressing them and knowing that it's not the fault of any individual. It's not someone's, you know, poor investing strategy. It's not someone's inability to save. It's that they weren't set up to save. They weren't given the tools or success in too many ways, unfortunately. And it's affecting us. If Everywhere you look, you can see this. If you haven't bought a house, you know a friend who has. If you haven't quit your job, you know a friend who has. And I think that's going to just become the story more and more. But hopefully we'll start doing something about it. Yeah, definitely. We need to. I mean, that's, uh, I, I think I, I'm saying a lot of things that I think I've said before. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that life? Um, yes. Uh, but, you know, I think that's one thing, like, with the effects of capitalism and arguably entering late stage capitalism is that, you know, if we don't address these issues, it's going to get to a point where they're going to make us address them because it's going to get that bad. If we don't course correct now, if we don't do something now to make this better, it's going to get worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, that's hard to hear. That's hard to face because it feels overwhelming. <laughs> but there are things that we can do. Humans created society. We can change the world we can change things for better we do not have to let this happen and you know maybe we could get it to a point where we feel comfortable and supportive having kids again and we start to do that we feel comfortable about the environment again like can you imagine like just even saying that it almost makes me want to cry because that feels such like a hopeful place to be at like if we could be there I am gonna cry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, but it truly does to think about it. To be in a world where we're like, "Fuck!" Like, we came back from this. Like, there's not giant plastic islands mm-hmm. floating in the ocean anymore, and we have hope for our children to have a good life. Like, that's literally what is coming down to. Yeah, <laughs> with all of this, it's that important. I feel I feel that way too and I mean even just like really really specific knowing that I I really so I moved back to Phoenix this is my first summer home in like three years I moved back now I actually just updated my license plate and license so I'm officially back in AZ but feeling really like I am at home again that I'm around my friends and family but knowing that in 50 years it's gonna be hotter here and by what increment I'm not a hundred percent sure but even like four or five degrees feels like so much and to know that like the average temperature here could get to 115 regularly when it's quote-unquote hot right now 100 degrees is you know a norm but to think 105, 110, 115 like that's climate change like that is something that weighs on me Every day, even if I'm not, you know, having a full-on conversation with someone about it, the effects of where we're at, where our world's at, we can't pretend like it doesn't affect us. It does. And I do think, too, you know, I'm not at a, a place to have kids. It's so funny that we, like, have talked about this several times on the podcast, but it's... I think like as a woman and as somebody who's in a committed relationship, it's something you think about. And just like you want to do better, 
you want to do better as a person, but you also want to know that you're bringing someone into a better situation. And just where we're at with the economy and with people feeling so uncertain and so insecure for really valid reasons, I mean, you can't help but get emotional. Like, it's hard. And it, and it shouldn't have to be. I think this, like, hardship story that so many people in the U.S. have, we need to choose for it to no longer be our narrative. The working overtime, the never seeing your kids, the grinding, um, we as individuals can decide for that to no longer be a part of our narrative. And then hopefully us as, like, a culture will make that change too. Right. Otherwise, that's like, what's the point? What's the point of having kids if this is what, you know, we're going to continue to do as a society? And, you know, maybe you can relate that sometimes I feel like a freaking Debbie Downer sometimes in conversations where these things come up. Or sometimes people will tell you, oh, well, you, you know, maybe you're worrying about that too much. Well, somebody fucking needs to. Somebody needs to worry about that. And I want you to feel bad about what's happening um, to the environment, to the economy, to, you know, our children. I want you to feel bad about that because then maybe you'll fucking do something. You know, we, we need to. And we will because, like I said, you know, either by choice or not, we're going to have to do something about it. So, <laughs> I think as a society, like, it's funny. I think burnout culture is something that really came up in maybe like 2018-ish. You were hearing about people on the internet really like reaching a burnout because the expectation was so high for so long. And I think that we're all kind of feeling that. The expectation just doesn't seem realistic and to continue going down this path, it just doesn't seem fruitful, truly, um, to continue, I mean, just really diving into the environment, to continue to, you know, lose species, to continue to get hotter, to have more and more kids that are allergic to more and more things with worse and worse asthma. It, It doesn't seem beneficial. And so I do hope that things will change. And I mean, in a way, you know, when our parents were our age, they had kids already, but I don't know if at our age, our parents were having these types of conversations. And so I think that the fact that we're having these conversations and hopefully we can bring more people into the conversation and keep it approachable and make it seem, I mean, like, yes, you should be angry and you should be passionate, but I don't want anybody to feel like downtrodden or uninspired. I think we really need to try our best best to keep going and in a way like that's what this podcast is for us Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and if you have kids already or you're pregnant or you're trying to get pregnant this is not a criticism on you for making that decision at all because it is a human right to reproduce and to have kids and you know I want kids and you know, we should feel comfortable making that decision and feel confident that our children's futures are not going to be bleak and dreary like the current trajectory is showing. And um, there is hope. I have hope because things have changed in the past. Things have gotten better in the past. We're not living in the dark ages anymore. Humans evolve. Nature evolves. And that's what we're going to do regardless of the obstacles in our way to do so. And I think kind of bringing it back, I think these like are women's issues and they affect women. They affect men too. They affect those who don't want to have kids. Like we're all inhabitants on this planet. We are all a part of, you know, many, many communities and hopefully we'll continue. I think cancel culture has been a thing that's been in kind of our worldview for a while and I do think that in a way like that's correcting itself like we're navigating back to a point of you know a little bit more open conversations a little bit more forgiveness a little bit more understanding and I think that we really need that in order to continue to have the types of conversations we want to have so totally don't cancel us no I'm just kidding um (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and um, let's stop. I think now, by the end of this, you, 
we've done a good job of showing you how interconnected all these things are and encourage people to stop labeling things as women's issues as a, a cop-out to stay out of the conversations and the discussions around these issues mm -hmm. we're facing mm -hmm. all together. <laughs> and to know too that like things can't be women's issues. They can't just be men's issues. They're not just minority issues. They're not just immigrant issues. They're all of our issues. And that's the only way that we're going to or that's the best way that we can like facilitate change and growth is to not blame, to not criticize, but to like listen and continue to show up. And I think that that's something we can work on every day. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I come across a little too preachy in these episodes. So I, y'all listening, I hope that it doesn't come across that way. This really is a conversation and I love having this conversation with you too, Taylor. And I think mm -hmm. your passion for the environment, truly, it, it comes from just like such an honest place for you. And I think that it really comes across that way. So I just wanted to thank you for sharing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I do have quite a visceral reaction to <laughs> things like that. But um, if you guys have anything to add to the conversation want to learn more if you're a mom too I'd love to hear your perspective on a lot of these things and your experience mm -hmm. uh, especially as a working mom so shoot us a dm over on instagram or you can email us hello at honeyandheartpod.com but thanks for listening we drop new episodes every other wednesday be sure to follow us on instagram at honeyandheartpod pod or on our website honeyandheartpod.com also if you're feeling so inclined we'd love for you to leave a review it helps other folks find our podcast and it lets whatever platform you're streaming on know that you like us and we like that too so thank you yeah we want to know if you like this, <laughs> we like this we want to keep doing it also, yeah, also, if there's, like, things people like or don't like or like more or a certain setup, like, this is, we're all up for critique and suggestions. I think that that's the only way we can get better, so just going to put that out there. Yeah, we'll do the research for you, and then you could just listen to us talk about it. <laughs> but thanks for listening and being part of our community in the chaos. Bye, Jacqueline. Bye, Taylor. Thank you.